Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. My name is Dan Hughes. My guest today is Scott Weber, Senior Portfolio Manager. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Dan. Let's get right into it. Uh, coming out to the end of Q1 2018 here, um, it's been a very interesting quarter, very fast out of the gate, um, saw a bit of a reversal. Uh, looks like we're going to close the quarter uh, somewhat flat on the S&P or close to it. Um, I guess this, this quarter will probably be marked more than anything else by, by the volatility that's re-entered uh, and quite a bit of it. Um, your thoughts, you know, it, it, was this to be expected? What is to be expected? Do you anticipate the, uh, seeing this kind of uh, volatil- volatility continued throughout the course of uh, 18? So I don't have a crystal ball for the full of 18, but I'll tell you that what we've seen thus far isn't terribly unexpected. What we've seen thus far in the year is a reflection of what we expected in that if you were to look at the beginning of the year and say, what are the two most crowded trades, you'd probably would have said uh, short dollar and short vol. Uh, Short vol is an interesting one that uh, in some ways is a proxy for yield search. And uh, to the extent that uh, you, you... you aggregate the different mechanisms that create that, whether it's the special ETNs and ETFs, which we saw disrupted meaningfully in February, uh, other maybe implied short vol via risk parity, value at risk models, etc. I would throw onto that uh, stock repurchase activity. Uh, one of the interesting things coming into this year is since the crisis, you've had somewhere between three and a half and four trillion dollars of stock repurchase by U.S. corporates. Uh, they're doing so, uh, generally speaking, using leverage. That takes uh, the current multiples on, uh, on, on the index and makes them look uh, perhaps a little bit better than they might have otherwise. Earnings growth certainly hasn't grown as much as earnings per share have grown. Um, and so in that, uh, if, if you think about where, where we entered the year, uh, you, you, you should expect that there should be certainly dispersion, perhaps uh, increased volatility, and I think it's healthy for the market. That's good. And then, you know, so as you're, as you're talking about, you know, the volatility that's been in the market, some of these plays that have been, been, been falling through, um, on the portfolio side of things, you've been, you know, fairly quiet, right? We haven't seen um, too many names in or out of the portfolio over the last two quarters. Um, anything that you would describe as why the lack of activity, right? Why, why the, you know, relative to where you historically are, you know, fewer names have been, been moving around. I, th- I think it's a reflection on... The fact that the market is trending towards where we thought it would trend, uh, there hasn't been a need to uh, to sell uh, any 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 problem children, so to speak, and, and we're not exactly sitting on the tip of the spear of this uh, short vol or uh, super high growth trade at all. So if, if I read into that, that tells you that that's telling me perhaps you've got some names out there, you've got some price targets on them, uh, but we just haven't quite met that that uh, those, those levels yet? And, and do you anticipate potentially getting to that point? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we could take that question a number of different ways, but there's no doubt that we're very busy here. We've been processing a lot of ideas. We have, uh, I won't say resolute, but strong view of intrinsic value uh, in the names that we own and the names that we would like to own. The, uh, the biggest trade that we've done in the last uh, you know, few quarters, I, I would say, is probably reducing our exposure to the, the, the broader FANG region by selling Alphabet. So, all right, perfect transition to, to the next question I had, but it was exactly right on, on tech. Um, so f- after years and years of being you know, fairly heavily overweight to tech, uh, as, I, as I look at the breakdown of the portfolio, it's the select portfolio today, um, you've moved far closer to even weight. 
uh, and you know, to your point earlier, the uh, the selling of Alphabet in 2017. Um, can you you know refresh the audience real quickly on the thoughts there? Um, was it regulatory? Was it was it price? Uh, what what's uh, what was a uh, catalyst? Yeah, there are several directions to take that. First of all, as a, as a reminder, you know, we, we don't start the day by saying we want to be underweight or overweight anything particularly on a sector per se. Uh, that, that sector allocation is a reflection of our individual names and, and the work that, that we've done on them. Uh, our, our concern with Alphabet or Google is, is going to distinguish from other businesses in tech. I mean, by, by extension, you know, we, we absolutely love Microsoft and, and are excited to have it as one of our largest positions. And so if, as you look, for example, across the biggest movers in that FANG trade, broadly speaking, you know, the Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, Apple, and Facebook, certainly coming into this quarter, were, were the biggest, it's, you, you have to combine the two share classes of Alphabet here, but the biggest holdings within the S&P comprising a much larger portion of market cap relative to things like the the cash flow that they generate or the employees that they have or the taxes that they pay. So going towards your regulatory question, we, we did identify regulatory risk, particularly in the advertising-driven models like Facebook and Alphabet. Uh, I'm no regulatory expert, but with respect to digital marketing in the United States, Facebook and Google now hold more than the lion's share of that marketplace. Digital advertising growth has been at a, at a torrid pace. Uh, taking share from other forms. And suffice to say that if you were to extrapolate the growth rate in those markets embedded in the stock prices, it would imply that the ad market in aggregate would grow faster than it has historically. And, and that's certainly a, a big risk, and that was a, a part of the decision for us to, to sell Google. Uh, the, the, the current press put politely that Facebook is garnered. It wasn't something that you know anyone would fully contemplate but it's easy to look at uh, a very profitable U.S. business model with, uh, with in fact, em embarrassingly attractive returns, but maybe um, a growing recognition of the creep factor of the level of knowledge that these businesses have about us as consumers. And there's a, a competitive dynamic that's growing through other forms, particularly through over-the-top viewing, which, which means that the... Uh, the granular level of data that Facebook and Google have on you, and they've enjoyed a sizable lead on other forms of advertising and being able to capture and monetize that will face a growing competitive threat from companies like Hulu or uh, DirecTV Now, uh, businesses that will have similar level of view into consumer patterns, their behavior, their shopping preferences. And, and that's to say nothing of the fact that those companies, meaning Facebook and Google and, and the other OTTs, will have some indication of interest by, view, by virtue of your viewing, your search habits, et cetera. But there's another giant company out there that knows what you actually bought, and that's Amazon. And that muscle hasn't really been flexed fully. So if you put all that together, you've got growing competitive threats, growing regulatory concern, a change in the consumer uh, awareness and taste profile with respect to how they interact with these uh, social programs in particular, but also the, just these media giants, and, and perhaps a, a growing regulatory thrust, particularly to come from Europe probably first. It's actually surprising to me that the United States is sort of shaking the tree a little harder at the moment than Europe. All those put together meant that we didn't want to continue to own Google. It's a fantastic business, and there are components to that company that I would really, really, that I'll keep monitoring, and we'd, we'd like to uh, perhaps have exposure to those other growing businesses within that company. But the risk 
really outweigh the opportunity set. There's a, so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, but as I'm taking it, you're just looking at those those FANG stocks uh, in aggregate. You know, it, it, would I be right to say that you know it is some type of a combination of risk of government intervention. Um, you know, there's been some bad press around uh, breaches of information, um, kind of that information creep that exists. Uh, but then also then the kind of uh, external threat of you know, specialty companies um, kind of chipping away and taking some, some of their market share. All that's true, and that just means it was overvalued. Great, great. Okay. Uh, so just last question on tech, and, and I know you've, you've answered this a bit already, um, essentially saying, look, you know, we're, we're, we're sector agnostic, um, and, and you know, specifically we're, we're looking at stocks, but would there be you know, some type of event or something that you would be looking for um, that would help you get more comfortable with the tech sector again as a, as, as a whole or as an entity, or that would cause you to take the portfolio again and, and shift it to a, a meaningful overweight to tech? Yeah, I mean, we tech is still our largest weighting, and tech effectively is a component to every business, practically speaking, in today. To that end, you know, there'll be some changes in the allocation of where some of these businesses reside in gigs coming in September with the joint announcement from S&P and MSCI to reallocate the index a bit. And so we're, we're monitoring that, not because we're going to make an investment decision based on what the indices do, but, but because we want to be aware of where that is and what that means from a competitive position. Insofar as tech goes, though, we, as I said, you know, it's, it's still our largest sector weighting today, and there are businesses that we own there that we love, and there's a few in particular that we'd like to add to. Um, and so I would say here again, it's really company by company determined, and we always are stock pickers first. Great. No, perfect answer. So a couple more, more uh, sectors I would like to touch on. So as I was going through the portfolio, um, you know, two of the lot more uh, heavily overweighted areas are, are consumer staples and materials. Um, you know, curious on on your positioning here. You know, this could this be considered for someone on an outside view? Is this a more defensive posturing, um, or are these still areas where you believe that our target return objective of fifty percent return over three years is is achievable? So, really, you know, I guess the, the, the question here is, you know, what's what's a catalyst for moving into those spaces? Yeah, it's a couple of things. Again, it's not going to be a sector decision uh, with respect to both materials and staples. The positions that we have there, we're, we're fantastically fond of. Uh, and so we have large positions in those names. Uh, we're shopping as always. Uh, there are those who would argue that materials should be uh, an attractive space for capital today, uh, given the, the relative flows. And certainly if you're going to take uh, any sort of S&P divided by the, the commodity index over time, it's at you know all-time lows. And from a cyclical standpoint, that would argue that it warrants our attention. Our attention is being paid there. We're doing work there. They're just... We haven't found a great business that we would trust our clients' capital in as of yet um, that, that, that's met our valuation threshold. But rest assured, we're, we're doing a lot of work there. It, it's not a, uh, a statement that we're trying to be defensive or anything like that in the aggregate. It's more of a function of the bottoms-up process that we lead. Uh, and, and one follow-up question to that. So you mentioned on materials, um, you know, they're, they're attractive, um, you know, trading at, you know, more of a all, you know, I don't know if you said all-time low or at a, at a lower level, um, in a world where you know the market has appreciated to the level it has, and you know, fair argument can be made for you know many other sectors and names being you know, heavily overvalued. You know, why is that that materials look so much more attractive? Well, in, in, in general, they're less attractive businesses, right? I mean, they're they're cyclical businesses. To put a blunt un- overstatement on that, uh, oftentimes it's a a capacity game and capacity is not something that's limited at the moment. 
Um, and, and I would tell you that the exposure that we have in materials as a single sector, while it may be less than the S&P, uh, we found some attractive places for capital and energy, which would be economically similar, again, blunt generalization, and we own you know, more energy than the index does. And, and we like the positions that we have there, you know, several different unique names that I, I think uh, will be alpha contributors. Um, and then, you know, before we wrap up here, as you, as you touch on energy, um, can you talk about the types of names that you do own inside the portfolio today, right? I mean, where, where are you seeing, you know, alpha generation? Is it traditional E&P businesses? Is it you know, kind of these midstream uh, transportation companies? What, what, are those, what do those companies look like? So, you know, the, the, the simple answer to your question is yes and yes. The more complicated answer is, you know, we, we've talked about this on the podcast in the past, Generally speaking, E&P companies destroy capital, and that's not good for a patient long-term investor. Uh, if you want to trade a cycle, uh, that's not investing. I mean, in, in our parlance, there's nothing wrong with someone doing it. It's just not what we do. Uh, and so our E&P holding is one of very few companies that actually does generate capital. It happens to be an offshore exploration business, uh, as distinguished from one of the many, as I call them, lemming shale plays. Um, and... and they have a, a, a commanding land position uh, and, and a great track record with drilling. They just happen to have had a little bit of frustration with that in 2017. I think there's a reset with respect to the narrative and the understanding of that business. I won't tell you that we can invest in that company because I think that all of a sudden energy investors will uh, disavow their love of shale plays. But I do think that time is our friend in, in that business, and it's less of a friend of the shale plays. And that, of course, is isolated for the, for the price per barrel. We're not investing in E&P because we think oil's gonna go up or down. We're investing in businesses that generate returns. And we use a reasonably draconian forecast for the commodity price to justify that. And so there's a lot of embedded upside in that position. Uh, in, in energy service, we think that uh, continued uh, utilization and pricing games at our primary holding there, which is Halliburton, are attractive. I think that, uh, in the mutual fund, you know, we own a, a midstream company that you reference, Enterprise. Uh, and MLPs have absolutely had a real, real rough go. Um, and, and a portion of that is yield concern, a portion of that is capital flow. Uh, but that's a fantastic business with, with a commanding asset position. And so we're confident in that through cycle and longer term. And one of our more recent additions last year is is a bit more of a cyclical play, but here again with a commanding asset position, commanding a large portion of supply, and that's Cameco. So Scott, on, on the back of your comments around volatility, uh, do you anticipate increased volatility as a result of the reduction of central bank liquidity uh, coming forward here in the rest of 18? I, I think that's absolutely got to be the case. I mean, one of the interesting things about volatility is, you know, business school, they teach you that it's an exogenous measure. Uh, and, and yet here we are with investing programs that use it as an input to their, their process, something like a risk parity. And so in as much as that's the case, the vol measure embedded in those investment decisions makes it a component of capital flow. And so if you think back to the end of the credit crisis through now, the one thing we've had is central bank-sponsored liquidity. Now, we can argue that the euro-dollar market has its own weaknesses, but there's no debating the fact that the primary central banks have been, let's call it, generous with liquidity. It's almost coincidental that the three and a half to $4 trillion of stock that U.S. companies have bought back 
is almost the same amount as what the Fed's carrying on their balance sheet. I know, I know it's not that simple, but it sure is a remarkable coincidence. And yet where we are here in 2018 is we have a removal of accommodation in the Fed. We have what we've called tapering at the ECB, uh, you know, yield curve control in Japan, et cetera, et cetera. So effectively, the central banks are, they've inflected, right, in, in, in aggregate. And of course, the U.S. has the smallest balance sheet of the, of the big ones. But you have a change directionally in that accommodation. Add to that, from the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, there's a, a hammer, if you will, to repatriate overseas capital. And depends on whose estimate you use for the size of that, but that's another $2.6 trillion, give or take. Said differently, that's a big shift in the direction of liquidity. And inasmuch as there have been quite a few assets that have abandoned active and gone to passive, you have a larger player in the field who is not a price motivated or uh, is not a price discovery function to the markets. So you have a larger pool of capital with less shock absorbers. And in effect, that means passive investing is sort of a momentum play on liquidity. And we have a removal of liquidity now that is probably, in, oh, and by the way, at a time when the market's not exactly at, at a low multiple. So I, I think that you should expect further volatility uh, in 2018. Great. Well, good. Well, thank you for this. Uh, thank you for your time. We appreciate you having it on. And uh, we look forward to, uh, to speaking with you again in the near term. Great. Thanks. Thanks. Important information. The analysis and opinions referenced herein represent the subjective views of Daniel Hughes and Scott Weber on April 5, 2018. They are subject to change at any time based on market and other conditions. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Top 10 holdings for the Vaughn Nelson Select Fund as of 3-31-2018. First, 21st Century Fox, 5.84%. Second, United Health Group, 5.60%. Third, Microsoft Corporation, 5.40%. Fourth, General Dynamics, 5.00%. Fifth, Berkshire Hathaway, 4.89%. Sixth, Home Depot, 4.88%. Seventh, Sherwin-Williams, 4.81%. Eighth, Texas Instruments, 4.55%. Ninth, Aptive PLC, 4.14%. Tenth, Time Warner Incorporated, 3.77%. As of March 31, 2018, the Vaughn Nelson Select Fund had 3.6% exposure to Halliburton and 2.0% exposure to Enterprise. As of March 31, 2018, the fund did not have exposure to Facebook, Google, Hulu, DirecTV, or Amazon. Any reference to specific securities, sectors, or markets within this material does not constitute investment advice, or a recommendation, or an offer to buy or to sell any security, or an offer of services. Equity securities are volatile and can decline significantly in response to broad market and economic conditions. Non-diversified funds invest a greater portion of assets in fewer securities and therefore may be more vulnerable to adverse changes in the market. Investments in small and mid-sized companies can be more volatile than those of larger companies. 
Options may be used for hedging purposes, but also entail risks related to liquidity, market conditions, and credit that may increase volatility. The value of the fund's positions in options may fluctuate in response to changes in the value of the underlying asset. Selling call options may limit returns in a rising market. Value investing carries the risk that a security can continue to be undervalued by the market for long periods of time. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit im.natixis.com or call 800-862-4863 for a prospectus or a summary prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully. Natixis Distribution LP is a limited-purpose broker-dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers for investment professional use only. Compliance code 20773211, job pod 103-0418, expires 9-30-2018.